turn to John chapter 6. We left off in verse 22. John 6, verse 22. We'll be going to verse 51 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your will that you would send your son so that we could be saved, so that we could experience the bread of life. And oftentimes uh, we feel empty in the challenges and the difficulties of life. And so this morning, would you remind us of where fulfillment lies in our relationship with you? Would you allow us to not just read about Jesus being the bread of life, but experiencing it in our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw Jesus having compassion upon the 5,000, the multitude that came. The disciples were at a place where they were expecting rest, but instead, here's this enormous need that they couldn't meet. The lesson for them was to bring what they have and to put it into the hands of Jesus, to make an attempt After everyone is eaten, they want to make Jesus king. They want to make him the bread king. Christ flees, goes to a mountain to pray, sends the disciples into a storm. The disciples in their faithfulness keep rowing because Christ had called them to go to the other side. Christ calms the storm, and that's where we pick up in this story in John chapter 6, where the multitude is seeking Christ, but they're seeking him for the wrong motivation. So let's begin our journey in verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So they're watching every move of Christ, and they know that Christ is not on the boat as the disciples cross the Sea of Galilee. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they realized, well, there's other boats that crossed over to Capernaum, so Christ must have been on another boat. They didn't know that Christ walked on water, that he was able to just cross over the Sea of Galilee. And we find them seeking Christ. They are coming after Christ in a pursuit. Christ has their attention. They're going to all of this effort. Now they've crossed over the Sea of Galilee on their own boats to come to Capernaum. But we're going to find that their motivation is off. It's wrong. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you get here over to Capernaum? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So they're not seeking Christ because they saw the signs and they want to know who Jesus is, but they had experienced the free lunch, the feeding of the 5,000 plus the women and the children. Every once in a while, across the street, Jimmy John's, the sandwich shop, offers really cheap sandwiches. I actually don't know how cheap because I've never had the patience to stand in the line. Like working right across the street, you know, we'll usually get word like Jimmy John's is basically giving away sandwiches. Well, that sounds good. 
I'll go for a really cheap sandwich. Then you get over there and the line is out the door, into the parking lot, all the way over to 24-hour fitness. Not quite that far, but far enough where you're like, this is not, not worth it. I mean, people just go crazy over free food, right? And so they're coming to Christ because they want another free lunch. And it's not just a lunch, but it's, well, if he can do this with five loaves and two fish, what other material needs could he meet in our life? How could he overthrow the Roman government? That would be no, no problem for him. What could he do with my bills? And if we're honest, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why are we seeking Christ? And are we seeking him for something physical? Now, does Christ meet our physical needs? Many times, yes. He's gracious enough to meet our physical needs. But is that his greatest goal in our life, is to meet physical needs? Think about our prayers. A lot of our prayers have to do with, God, would you help with this bill? My car broke down. Would you help it to get fixed inside of my budget? Would you work in this relationship? Would you heal this relationship? This relationship is bringing a lot of heartache into my life. My body physically is broken and I'm facing this surgery, this difficulty. God, would, would you bless my, my health? Now again, there's not necessarily anything wrong with those things, but hopefully we're seeking Christ for more than just the physical, that we're seeking Christ because he's the bread of life, because he's our savior. That we're coming to him saying, Jesus, I want to know you. I'm here this morning because I want to learn about you. I want to walk with you. I want you to, to speak to me. I want to be in relationship uh, with you. And so that's the, the heart and that's the challenge that we find in verse 26. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus tells us something not to do. He commands us to not labor for food that perishes, but then instructs us to labor for the food that lasts for everlasting life. You think about this feverish effort to always have food. It's an endless need that happens in our lives. Thus, the popularity of Costco, right? It's never going to be your last trip to Costco. Think of the food that you buy. What happens? It perishes in one of two ways. You eat it. Hopefully you are able to eat all of it before it, what, goes bad. But you're either going to eat it or it's going to go bad. It, it perishes. But so much of our effort is put into all of the physical needs. And we're laboring so that those physical needs can be met. And this is pretty radical of Christ where he's saying, don't just put your focus on the physical, but labor for that food that lasts for eternal life. And here he tells us, if we look at the end of verse 27, it says, which the son of man will give you. Christ is working a powerful illustration here of the feeding of the 5,000, of taking the bread and the fish and the multiplying it and he's saying there's a spiritual food that will last for eternal life. And that spiritual food is provided by Christ. So if we're going to labor for that kind of food, it's going to be found in a relationship with Christ. And the Father has sent Christ and has set his seal on him. 
He's put his stamp of approval upon Christ to bring us into that everlasting life. So what are you seeking this morning? And what motivation are we seeking Christ? And then what are we laboring for? And is there any laboring that's taking place in this spiritual realm? In this wanting to know Christ more? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. Our life is always going to be out of balance in the wrong priorities if Christ isn't first. If we're not seeking him for who he is and a relationship with him. If we're not laboring for that first. Otherwise, we're going to be extremely frustrated and we're not going to experience Christ being our bread of life. In verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So when they hear this word laboring, they miss that Jesus is the one who gives the bread that lasts for everlasting life. And they assume, well, we have to do something in order that we can do the works of God. And this is oftentimes where our focus goes when it comes to a relationship with the Lord is not the work that Christ has done, but the work that I need to do. So if I'm going to have food that lasts for everlasting life, I I better work hard. And how can I do the works of God? But that's not where Christ puts the focus in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him in whom he has sent, that you believe in him whom he sent. This verse is so important. It's worth underlining, meditating on, memorizing. Jesus says, this is how you do the works of God. It's through believing in him whom he sent. How are we saved? That's an important question to have the answer to. We're saved through trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not in our work, but what he has done upon the cross, that he died for our sin, that he paid the price for our sin, that he rose again. And as we believe and we trust, then we're saved. This is simple, isn't it? But it's so profound. It's so powerful. It's so, so beautiful that Jesus would pay the price for our sins. As he is the bread of life and he was broken for us, he's providing everlasting life and providing satisfaction for our souls. So don't get that mixed up. Don't get those wires crossed. Do you think that God loves you more because you had a good week spiritually? You read your Bible, here you are at the Sunday service at nine o'clock in the morning. Maybe you're even giving to the work of the Lord and you're like, man, I think God just loves me a little bit more this week. Or, when you don't do so well. Maybe this week you're like, man, I, I did some things that I shouldn't have done. I sinned. I failed. I, I blew it. I'm pretty sure this morning that God loves me less. That's not true. His love for us is consistent in the finished work of Christ. And as we believe in Christ, we receive everlasting life. You're not more saved when you had a good week spiritually. And then you're less saved because you had a bad week spiritually. And this is what's dangerous about this idea that you can lose your salvation or that your salvation is tied to your works. So at what point then do you lose your salvation? If you die in a traffic accident and you were getting mad right before you passed away, then you may not be saved because you just lost your temper, right? Or is it based on what words you said? While you were losing your temper, oh, you said that word, you're not saved. 
right? It has to be in the finished work of Christ. It has to be believing in him and trusting in him. Are works important? Yes. Works reflect the reality that we're saved, but they don't save us. And as we have the joy of sharing with others, we get to share the gospel with them and the power of the gospel that comes through faith in Christ. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Really? Did they really just ask this? What sign are you going to do that we may believe in you? These are the ones that just experienced the miracle of Christ feeding the multitude with five barley loaves and two fish. But yet they're saying, you need to do something in order to prove that you are the one who's sent from the Father. And they bring up Exodus 16 when God gave manna from heaven for the children of Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. And they're still pushing the envelope to saying, look, Moses, he gave us bread from heaven. He met our material needs. And if you're greater than Moses, then what are you going to do for me? What physical need are you going to provide in my life to prove that you are the one sent from the Father? In verse 32, then Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus corrects them. He says, look, it wasn't Moses. Moses was a man. And yes, a godly man, but also a sinful man. He didn't have the power to be able to give you bread from heaven every morning. It was the Father who provided the manna, the bread from heaven. This is an easy mistake for us to make, isn't it? Where we get our eyes on a person, we get our eyes on an individual instead of the Lord. God may use someone in your life, but remember, it's God who's using them. It's God who is providing them. It seems in our Christian culture in America, we tend to want to make celebrities out of Christian leaders. Whether they're authors or pastors or you name it. We go, man, I'm going to put them on a pedestal. Be careful, because they're going to let you down. We're going to let you down. It's God who provides. It's God who's worshipped. It's God who's on the pedestal. Amen? So the, the bread from heaven wasn't provided from Moses. It was provided from God. In verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So God is using all of this to point to Christ. All the way back to Exodus 16 when God would give bread to the children of Israel, manna from heaven every day. That's pointing to Christ who would come down from heaven. As Christ feeds the 5,000, it points to Jesus, that Jesus is the bread to meet our spiritual needs. And here it says, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus came down from the glory of heaven and was born as an infant in Bethlehem. God in human flesh. God came down. Then lived a life of obscurity as a carpenter. Most of Christ's life was filled with obscurity where nobody knew who he was and he was working faithfully. Then as he began his public ministry, He was rejected. 
So he comes down into human flesh, he comes down into obscurity, and then he comes down into rejection, even by his own family. Then he comes down to the cross, where he's humbled on the cross, beaten, crucified, killed for our sins, then to be raised, rises from the dead, ascended back to the Father, and has the name above every name. The reason Jesus came down is so that he could be the bread of life for us, that he could be that substance for us, and he gives life to the world. Paul said this in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is life, it's Christ. Christ is the source of life. In verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. I'm saying, great. If, if there is this bread that comes down from heaven that gives life to the world, we'll take it. But I think their mind is still on the physical. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. There's seven miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John, just seven, for the purpose that we would believe and through believing have life in his name. And then there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And why this is so important is this is the first I am statement. We're going to highlight those as we go through the book of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This has its foundation, its roots in Exodus chapter 3. Moses had gone to the wilderness from Egypt out to the wilderness as a shepherd. God reveals himself to him through the burning bush. The bush is on fire but not being consumed and God speaks with Moses and calls him to go back to Egypt. God wanted to do a work of deliverance for the children of Israel. Moses says, well, who's sending me? Who can I say is sending me? And God responds, I am that I am. A powerful statement of God being the limitless resource. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's all present. He's I am that I am inexhaustible. Don't worry about it, Moses. I am that I am is is sending you. So when Jesus says, I am, he's declaring himself to be God. And what the beautiful thing is about the life of Christ is he really fills in the blank of that I am statement. I am that I am is hugely powerful, but it's not very personal. And so God is all powerful, but yet he's extremely personal. Isn't that an amazing balance? And so here Jesus is saying, I am that I am, but as the great I am, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who's come to bring satisfaction to your soul. And what Jesus highlights here is he says, if you come to me, you'll never hunger. If you believe in me, you'll never thirst. So as we physically have this endless hunger that takes place, I'm sure you've all noticed this. Maybe you had breakfast before church. You're probably starting to get a little hungry if you're like me. If you didn't have breakfast, you're up a creek without a paddle. The cafe's open right after service. Go get a breakfast burrito, right? But I'll eat and eat and eat some more. And then a few hours later, I'm hungry again, right? Here in Colorado, I carry around my Nalgene water bottle and I'll, I'll drink 32 ounces. And then a few hours later, I'm 
extremely thirsty. Once again, it's, it's this endless need. And what Christ is saying is spiritually our soul has an endless need. There's a hunger there. There's a thirst there. And it can only be satisfied in Christ. That Christ came to die for our sins, bring us into everlasting life, and fill our souls with Jesus. There's a void that can only be filled by Christ. We can try to fill it with other things, but we'll come back to a place of emptiness. So how do we experience Jesus as the bread of life? Jesus says, you have to come to me. And we come to him in salvation, but do we stop coming to him then? No, we continually come to Jesus to commune with him, to know him, to walk with him. And then also through believing in him, and we believe to be saved, but we continue to trust in the Lord as as we walk with the Lord. And then that's how we digest him as the bread of life. Friday night, a friend was telling me about a woman this week in New York by the name of Tara Condell, 27 years old, and she decided to take her own life. So I looked up the story, read a New York Times article about her life. She's a marathon runner. She's in great shape. She's a nutritionist, a dietitian. She, in her own life and in the life of others, helps them get in the best physical shape of her life. And before she committed suicide, she wrote this down and she communicated her thoughts and it shows the need for Christ being our bread of life. I quote, I realize I'm undeserving of thinking this way because I truly have a great life on paper. I'm fortunate to eat meals most only can imagine. I often travel freely without restriction. I live alone in the second greatest American city, San Francisco. You always have my heart. However, all of these facets seem trivial to me. She continued, it's ultimately a first world problem. I get it. I often felt detached while in a room full of my favorite people. I also felt absolutely nothing during what should have been the happiest and darkest times in my life. No single conversation or situation has led me to this decision. So at what point do you metaphorically pull the trigger? We are at a place in our society where we really idolize fitness, don't we? And we think, man, if you can be in great shape and you can run marathons and you can eat the right diet, then you are going to have a satisfied soul. Now, is there wisdom in taking care of your body? Absolutely. Is there some benefit in exercise? Absolutely. But can exercise fill this longing in your heart that only Christ can fulfill? If you take care of the physical and you don't address the spiritual, you'll find yourself in this exact same place. This lady's saying, I've got everything, but yet I don't have anything. There's a spiritual component in our lives. And even as Christians, as believers, it's easy for us to make the physical the priority, the finances, the relationships, our physical health, and we forget the spiritual. We forget the bread of life. And God in his love 
whispers to us in our emptiness. He allows us to experience emptiness a part of him. He's saying, Eric, come back to me. I'm the bread of life. I've done it for you. I was broken, so you don't have to be. Come to me, believe in me, and I will allow you to experience that hunger being met in Christ. So we want to experience this, but also, guys, this is what we get to share with others. There's a lot of empty people walking around, and they've got a misconception about Christ, and they're looking to all kinds of things to fill this spiritual need. Do you know how frustrating this would be if you didn't know about Jesus, and Jesus is the only thing that can meet this internal need? And you're rushing through life, searching through life, maybe this will work, maybe that'll work, and we get to come alongside of them and say, how's it going? You seem kind of empty. You seem like there's something missing. Have you ever read the Gospels? Have you ever read the Gospel of John? Have you ever heard about who who Christ is? He's the bread of life. You were created to have a relationship with him. We go on in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So they're seeing Christ but not believing in him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. A great, beautiful balance here of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is sovereign, meaning that he draws us unto himself. No one comes to Jesus without the Father drawing them. And we see that at the beginning of verse 37. But then we also see, he who comes to me, I will no means cast out. So our responsibility is to come to Christ. Our responsibility is to make a choice to accept or reject Christ. In verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Christ emphasizes this over and over, that he came to do the will of the Father, not his own will. Verse 39 is hugely significant because we see the will of the Father. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has sent me, I should lose nothing. That, all, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So the will of the Father who sent me is, in paraphrase, salvation. That all that the Father has given to Christ, that Christ won't lose them. Isn't it comforting that we are in the consistent care of Christ? That he's not going to lose us, and he's going to raise us up in the last day. So the Father's will was to send the Son so that we could be in relationship with God and have everlasting life. I think I'm getting a taste of this in kind of a a unique way. I've talked about this a few times this year, but in March of last year, I had the opportunity to buy a 78 Chevy pickup truck, a K10, for $500 and sitting in a friend's yard, had been abandoned and needs uh, a lot of work. And yesterday, had the opportunity to work on it a little bit with my son Wyatt. Hadn't really worked on it for uh, three months or so. It was just such a nice day. I decided, well, I'll pull it into the garage and check the oil. On this thing, you got to check the oil because it burns oil. I don't know what all it does with the oil, but it has a way of disappearing, right? And then that was going to be it. And Wyatt was all pumped up about the truck, and he's like, well, let's Let's work on it. And we've got one gas tank that is working. It's got two gas tanks, and the other gas tank has been uh, disconnected. 
And so we're like, okay, let's try to get it connected back together. And we're looking at it the best that, that we know how and get out our, our manual. And it was just really fun. And then come to discover I did it wrong and we're going to have to go back and reconnect it, right? But I was telling Amber on the way to church last night, what I like about this truck is the condition in which it came, which was it needed work, right? It's a lot more fun to me than just a truck that is all put together, that that works, because you get the joy of working on it and seeing things that didn't work before now start to work. And I think that that's God's heart in salvation, and it expresses his will. He sees us, and we're a mess, aren't we? We're filled with sin. He sees a world that's a mess and that's filled with sin. And he says, I'm going to send my son, and it's the ultimate restoration project. You get what I'm saying? And it's such a complete restoration project that when we get to heaven, we're completely glorified. And a condition that's far better than we ever started in. Now, in these restoration projects on vehicles, the glory doesn't go to the truck, right? The truck was getting worked on by someone. And in the same way, our lives are not a glory to ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. It's a glory to our Father. When we're in heaven, everybody's going to go, wow, the Father did a really good job. Like, I knew you in life, and you were not this in life, right? We're going to look at our spouse and go, dang, you look good, right? God has done a perfect work of glorification in your life. This is the will of the Father. In verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They complain that Jesus states that he is the bread of life and also stating that he's God. They get what Christ is saying. They understand the Old Testament picture of the bread coming down from heaven, the manna coming down from heaven, and Jesus being the manna from heaven. But instead, they complain about Christ, which was also the issue in Exodus 16 was complaining and murmuring. The reason that God gave bread from heaven is because they were unsatisfied with their physical provision. So God said, okay, I will give you manna every morning and quail at night, meat at night. In verse 42, then they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? The reason they're not believing in Jesus is they're like, oh yeah, you grew up down the street. You're Mary's son. You're Joseph's son. They think they've got this all figured out. But Joseph is not Christ's dad. He's his earthly father, but not his heavenly father. There was the virgin birth. So wrongly, they're assuming that they have understanding on this. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, don't murmur among yourselves. Be careful if complaining enters into our hearts. Jesus uses the same word that is used in the Old Testament of the children of Israel. Murmur, 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 murmur. When I'm complaining and I'm murmuring, my eyes are not on Christ. I'm not experiencing him as the bread of life. I'm upset about my situation, my circumstance. In verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Quoting Isaiah 54, verse 13. And they shall all be taught by God. This is a great promise. We're all getting taught by the Lord. 
God is communicating to us through his spirit. The spirit is drawing us to Christ, to those who will hear and learn are the ones who come to the Father. It's a comfort in our lives, but it's also a comfort for those that we love. To know God's teaching my kids. God's teaching my family. God's teaching my coworkers, my neighbors. All shall be taught by God and have the opportunity to hear and learn. In verse 46 Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Well, that's Jesus. He's come from the Father, and he's the only one who has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Emphasizing the belief in Christ, which results in everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So they're elevating this experience in the wilderness where they're getting manna uh, from heaven. I realized this week, I think the manna was actually tacos. I had the opportunity to go down to Juarez, visit some missionaries that the church supports, Nolan and Marie Shockey, and it was a blessing. Visiting the local pastors that they're working with and helping to train and, and equip and everywhere we went, we ate tacos, and it was so good. And one of the pastors, he made us chili rianos and had us in his home, and it was so humbling and enjoyable. So I'm just convinced that the manna had to have been tacos. That was really the bread of life, was the tacos. And at the marriage feast of the lamb, it's going to be Mexican food. I'm, I think so. I mean, we are really missing out. So anyway, side note there, let's get back on track. They are elevating this experience of the manna from heaven and saying that would be great. But Christ emphasizes they died. It didn't result in everlasting life. The interesting thing is if you put Christ first, if you put the spiritual first, in heaven all of the physical needs are met. It results in everlasting life. In verse 51, I am the bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And we'll expand this thought next week as we finish John chapter 6. But Christ gives us this powerful now picture that the bread was broken and the bread symbolizes his flesh. And that his flesh had to be broken just as the bread was broken to be distributed. Christ was broken so that we could experience him as the bread of life. Think about the ways that Christ's flesh, his literal body was broken and how it communicates that he's the bread of life. He's nailed to the cross. His hands are nailed to the cross. His feet are nailed to the cross. The crown of thorns is placed upon his head and he's bleeding. He's whipped, he's beaten, his flesh on his back is is ripped apart, and this is all communicating Christ's love. This is all communicating him being the punishment for our sins. He was broken so that we could be made whole. Maybe in your life you've been abandoned, you've been hurt. It's difficult for you to believe that you're loved by God. Look at the broken body of Jesus Christ. The pain that we experience in life to point us and bring us to the Christ and him being our refuge, saying, I realize that you are my bread of life. So my question for us this morning, 
is, why are we seeking Jesus? Are we like the multitude where we're really seeking him for the physical, for the material? And it's been a while since we have sought him for who he is in a relationship with him. Are we laboring for all of the wrong things? Do we need to come to Christ afresh this morning to experience him as the bread of life, to meet the hunger of our soul and the thirst of our soul? I would pray this morning that you would experience Christ as your Savior. If you've never chosen to trust him for salvation, maybe you thought, if I'm a good person, then I'll be saved. I can earn my salvation. And this morning, through reading the word, you've come to realize the only way that you're saved is through faith, through coming to Jesus and believing in him, believing that he died for your sins and rose again. If we don't understand that we're sinners, it's hard for us to see our need for a savior. But if we realize we've fallen short, we've all sinned, that we need a savior, and trusting him for forgiveness, inviting him to be the Lord of our life. It sure seems like, to me from the word, everlasting life is something that you know you've received based on your faith in Christ. So you know if you have everlasting life or not. And if you don't, may today be the day where you're saved. May today be the day where you make that decision to trust Christ as your savior. As we sing this last song and we enter back into to worship and spend a, a time in worship. There'll be a ministry team and a prayer team here in the front. If you'd like to come and receive Christ as your Savior, we'll pray with you. But you know, you can be saved without coming down. Come down if God's leading you to, but maybe you cry out to Christ right where you're standing and say, Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for me and you rose again. Would you be my Savior? And then I think it's important to let somebody know that you made that decision to go ahead and get your phone out in church and text some family, text some friends. I just received Christ as my savior. The important thing is believe and be saved. And for us that are the children of God, if you need prayer this morning, if you're saying, man, I'm just empty. I relate with this 27-year-old girl in New York where everything's going great in my life, but I'm empty. I'm not experiencing Christ as the, the bread of life. Or man, my... Life is extremely difficult and I feel empty. Come and receive prayer. Maybe you're somewhere in between great difficulty and great celebration. It's called real life, the land of mediocrity where we live most days of our lives. Saying here I am just existing and I I feel empty. Come and receive prayer. Allow Christ to be the bread of life in our lives this morning. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Let's just open our hands to the Lord in prayer and just humble our our hearts before him. Jesus, as we open up our hands, we open up our hearts. We open up our lives to you. You see the brokenness. You see the despair. You see the emptiness. You see the joy. You see the celebration and everything in between. Jesus, we get it mixed up. We seek after the physical instead of seeking after you. And right now, we choose to come to you afresh and believe in you and trust you. And would you be gracious to fill our souls in a way that only you can? 
We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.